It's Wednesday, May 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Income Investor James Early and from Fool.com, Eric Bleeker. Happy Wednesday, gents. Happy Wednesday to you, Chris. We got a lot of technology companies to talk about Microsoft, Google, Netflix, all in the news. But let's start with Tiffany. Shares hitting an all time high this morning after first quarter results that were. Pretty damn impressive, James. Revenue of a billion dollars, profit up 50%, and their same-store sales kind of across the board were just sort of crushing it. It is interesting, Chris. You know, Tiffany, which is the the number two store for profitability per square foot in the world uh, behind Apple. Apple is about double Tiffany's profits. It's not even close. But Tiffany is an interesting example. It's the, the stock you thought or the company you thought was going to dilute its brand a long time ago by going down market and there and there everything goes down the toilet. But it actually hasn't. They're actually making higher profit margins on their cheaper, what is it called, Atlas? Whatever the, the, the cheaper line is called. So good for Tiffany. I mean, they really surprised me. Do you think the the people at Coach look at what's happened with Tiffany over the last five years and regret their decision to go? That's a painful question, Chris, because Coach is an income investor <laughs> recommendation, and it hurts me every time I think of this word. Um, you know, Coach makes, uh, in terms of the, they have their outlet line, they make about 80% of their, 80-something percent of their outlet products specifically for the outlet. So they've made like a bigger effort to do that. And, and for whatever the reason, maybe their brand was never as strong to begin with. Coach is, just, is, is not having the same success. Um, but they've got the. I think we talked about this earlier. They've got a new line coming. I think in the fall. It's yeah, got a new, new designer. New designer. Yeah. New products. Uh, the, the reviews have been good, but they won't actually hit stores till September. Co- correct. And 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 the buzz on Instagram, on Pinterest, on all you know Twitter. Uh, Michael Kors and Kate Spade are getting far more mentions than Coach. Now maybe that's partly because of the demographic of Coach, but that. Those are still the up-and-coming Coach customers, so they've got to get their butt in gear one way or another. All right. At an event on Tuesday in New York City, Microsoft unveiled a new version of the Surface tablet computer. Somewhere, seven people are jumping up and down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Eric, larger screen, thinner, lighter, what... There's got to be more to it than that. What's uh, what, what's the early review on this device? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit cheaper than last version, but I mean, you still look at combining the keyboard with the entry level. It still starts at nine thirty, um, so quite a bit more expensive than other tablets. You look at Surface; it hasn't made a huge dent in terms of non-iPad uh, web browsing. It's like seven percent, which is low. I, I think Microsoft needs to kind of refine what the product is at this point. If you look at Surface as a tablet, maybe they want to brand it within that category because it's one that's seen a lot of growth recently. But it's really more of kind of Microsoft's vision of the future of the PC because we do see some blend between the two form factors. So I think, you know, if people are looking at to make a dent in the tablet market, of course, you'll be disappointed. It might grow off the last model to nine people buying it, as right. James would say. But uh, Double-digit percentage <laughs> growth. But what do I benefit from buying a Surface? I mean, it's like a less cool iPad. I mean, is, is it... Is it, it sounds like you're saying it's actually a little bit different functionally. Well, I think the Surface Pro is heavily marketed to IT organizations. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's aiming for a different category. So I think people want it compared but to what, the What iPad. makes it different? What puts it in a different category? Is it like keyboard? Is it just more powerful computer? Is well, it- yeah. So it, it would come with a more powerful processor. Um, it does have the uh, keyboard. And like I said, it's kind of a... A demonstration product for some of Microsoft's efforts. I, see. I got it. Got it. To got be it. forward-looking, yeah. yeah. It seems like it would be more. You would use that tablet more for work as opposed to an iPad. I know you can use an iPad for work, but it just seems like 
to the extent that Microsoft has any sort of institutional advantage over Apple with this device, that would be yeah. it. The iPad is more of a pleasure device. Yeah, and they just put out Office for uh, iPad, and Microsoft's making themselves a little bit more platform agnostic in that respect. But you look at what Google does a lot with their tablets. They'll put out their Nexus, and not because they want to own the market, but they're trying to put a showcase model out. I think that's how you think of this product. What grade do we give new CEO Satya Nadella so far? It seems like, on balance, he's getting pretty good remarks, uh, pretty good marks from Wall Street, and the fact that the stock is now over forty dollars a share probably helps him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Microsoft's probably at its most forward-looking point in about the past decade. Like I said, they're going, they're becoming more platform agnostic. You can be. A business platform that sits on top of iOS and Android, and I think that's what they're trying to be. And I think at this point in uh, market share battles, that's their best strategy. Google has released a letter it sent to the SEC back in December saying it will need 20 to $30 billion worth of overseas profits to fund international acquisitions, uh, alluded to, without naming uh, a specific company, alluded to uh, a potential 4 to $5 billion deal that they passed on. I'm curious what you think about this, Eric, because when you look at the cash that Google has on the balance sheet, they got about $60 billion in cash. 35 of that is overseas. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, James and I were talking about this a little bit before we started taping. This seems like a, a, a drumbeat that's getting louder and louder mm-hmm. from companies in general, but in particular tech companies, that, hey, we've got all this cash overseas and we want to bring it back without really getting dinged on taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they go through some pretty advanced tactics to hide their taxes. What yeah. is it? The double Dutch Irish sandwich or whatever, yeah. all the <laughs> strategies. So um, I, I think one key important point here is sometimes it feels like you're letting the tail wag the dog a little. We know Microsoft went and bought Skype in part because it was based in Luxembourg, so it was tax efficient. Cisco has said they're going out and looking for overseas because it's more tax efficient. Um, but one of the problems is the common refrain is there's no Bill Gates of Europe. And you look across um, some of these other uh, markets. Let's look at Europe, for example. The the top uh, European country in terms of market capitalization is the 14th largest tech company. It's SAP. Before that, there's a Korean, a Taiwanese, and a Chinese company. And you go down to the next largest European tech firm. It's Accenture, which is there for tax reasons. Right. I mean, it's not even the real base per se. So I think part of the problem is you really limit your innovation when you're looking overseas. And to be tax efficient, you're not always buying the best companies. I, I think that's probably a bad long-term strategy. And wouldn't we as a country prefer to have some of that cash brought back and actually invested in the U.S. also? I mean, you've got to think lawmakers, well, I guess they're not aware of this, but but if, if the taxes weren't so onerous, uh, like Eric says, we're, people are jumping through ridiculous hoops to either keep this cash overseas or, or like, like Pfizer's trying to do this kind of inverse merger thing with AstraZeneca for tax reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. this is embarrassing that, that we're, we're undertaking. We have smart minds doing such uh, antics just to, 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 to get around a, a silly tax code. Mm-hmm. Sticking with Google, uh, Adweek has come out with their list of the most valuable brands, and Google has moved from the number two spot to the number one spot, replacing Apple, which drops down to number two. It seems like one of those things that's nice as a feather in the cap. I don't know that this actually does anything for the business itself, but uh, you tell me. I mean, just going through the, the top five here, all tech companies. Uh, or I should say four, uh, Google, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, uh, those are the top four on the list. Uh, number five, McDonald's. 
As I understand it, Chris, this rating was done by a company called Brands with a Z. Anything with a Z, I think you have to discount the credibility by 25% automatically. <sighs> I mean, what can you say? The reason that they do these lists is because they get a lot of attention. Um, it doesn't always necessarily track well, but you are getting to a certain point that, I mean, Apple's long had cachet, but you do see Google moving ahead of it, especially on a global basis. And you even look at Apple going out and buying a company like Beats, presumably. And uh, there's a lot of questions on why they're doing that. And one reason people have thrown out there is because they're trying to appeal more to that younger generation. And Apple has a different meaning to people in their 20s and 30s because it was a more scrappy company than today's youth, where it's kind of the new Microsoft in some respects. Stepping back from Google and Apple, and even for that matter, any company that's on this list, I'm just curious for each of you as investors, how you incorporate brand into your process. And maybe it's not at all, but on the one hand, it's certainly a plus if a company has a good, strong brand and and that resonates with customers, it resonates with partners, all stakeholders, that sort of thing. On the other hand, we've seen investors do quite well being opportunistic with companies that have taken a hit to their brand, to their reputation. Uh, I'm just curious to what extent, if any, James, you incorporate Over the long term, a brand should manifest itself financially in what's called return on invested capital. In other words, can a company invest its money and earn a bigger return? If you're taking out a loan at 7%, you better at least earn 7% of that money, right? That's kind of like your return on invested capital. So a brand should help you do that. And, And you're right, Chris. There's a certain staying power, magnetism a brand can have, a mean reversion. So in other words, there's some kind of a like you know J and J's Tylenol recall, obviously in, in one, eighty two or eighty three, whenever that was. Uh, there are there are these hits, but but a good brand can, can withstand that. What about you, Eric? Yeah, and I, I think brand in many ways is indistinguishable from uh, product quality. You look at a company like Google moving to the top. One thing that they do is often semantic search. I search for um, yourself. Search for myself, <laughs> and there I am. But you know, you search for uh, top albums of twenty thirteen, and they actually displayed in the search. They could put advertising there and use that as an opportunity to make more money, but they're kind of reinforcing their product to be the best, which reinforces their brand, which gives a short-term hit p- positions than best for the long term. So you're always looking for companies who will do that. When I think of Google, I think of this privacy-ignoring conglomerate or something. It's just, you know, I, I hate Google. I don't like to register. I mean, they make you register everything. Do not everything use Google they, when you're they, searching for I stuff? I have no choice but to use Google. I have no I have Google no, Calendar. That's not true. You could use Bing. My, my Bing. wife has to have Google Calendar for the family, so I have to use these <laughs> things. But, but like, they want to, like, map you. They want to, like, connect you to every other thing when you do it. Like, you can't just use, like, one service, you know? So everybody wants to have your data. I think that's that's wrong. So to me, the brand is lousy. But, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously the, the, the minority. I'm not brands, but um, that's just, just <laughs> is my seat. opinion. Uh, finally, shares of Netflix up a couple percentage points this morning on the news that Netflix is expanding service into more countries in mainland Europe. Uh, they'll be adding France, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Belgium, Luxembourg. On balance, seems like a good move. It's certainly the the move that they made uh, overseas a few years ago uh, seems to have proven itself out. Yeah, I'm very 
very excited about Luxembourg, <laughs> let me tell you. I'm not saying that the Luxembourg <laughs> opportunity from a, a, a cash standpoint hey, is the same as Germany and France. I got an article going out later today, the Luxembourg opportunity. So don't don't give it away here. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's always been a big part of Netflix's story. They're, um, I don't know exactly at the moment, but a $20 billion plus company, I believe. And uh, their international kind of success was baked into that. So we've seen them, you know, apparently do very good in Latin America and uh, scale over to the United Kingdom. But getting media rights and being able to scale out these products is a pretty time-consuming process, so it's encouraging to see them uh, you know, continue moving on. And, hey, those are, those are pretty sizable markets when you add it all up. I mean, France and Germany combined alone, you know, 140 million people or so. Do you have a uh, – just to give our listeners – because we got Memorial Day weekend coming up. It's the official kickoff to the summer movie season. So certainly you can go out – to the movies and, and see, you know, X-Men or whatever, Spider-Man, all of those sorts of things. But I'm just curious, is there a film that you would recommend that takes place in Europe in honor of Netflix expanding into Europe? I'm just going to throw out one that actually takes place in Belgium, and that is the wonderful dark comedy In Bruges oh, I love with, uh, with Colin Farrell. No, I've never heard of it. Uh, it is just a wonderful movie. A little dark, uh, definitely not a movie for the kids, but, <laughs> but dark and funny Funny, funny. So in Bruges, uh, basically two Irish hitmen have a hit that goes bad, and they have to hide out in the quaint little tourist town of Bruges in Belgium. Uh, what about you, Eric? A, a film that takes place in Europe. Hmm. Well, I guess uh, if, if I had to go back, I actually took a lot of cinema studies classes. I'm a cultured that's, person. That's you really? Know? That's really interesting. And, uh, yeah. Uh, Frederico, Frederico Fellini's I Can't Talk This Morning, uh, Eight and a Half was a really beautiful film from, uh, you know, 1960s Italy. Yeah. So if people are willing to go a little bit more avant-garde or what what you want to call it, uh, I would recommend that film. Um, and you can pick that up. It's a Criterion DVD for people who enjoy that collection. Oh, yeah. No, uh, that's oh one of the all-time classics. You guys are far James. more cultured than I am. I, I, I've got James Bond, and that's about it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Most Bond movies are going to hit Bond, Europe yeah. at yeah. some point. All right, James Early, Eric Bleeker. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Gail Anya Nuevo. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.